This episode is brought to you by the Metasearch Institute. What happens when patients' cases become too complex to solve in a typical 30-minute visit? Well, you've all had those super thick, super deep patient histories nobody's looked at in a long time and gone back through. Well, I'll tell you what happens is those patients bounce around from doc to doc without getting any answers or making any progress. These patients are trapped and lost in a maze. Well, Metasearch is here for those doctors and for those patients. Their motto is, we solve the unsolvable. Their process is rather simple. Dr. Trent Talbot, the founder, assigns a team of medical detectives, typically three MDs and one PhD, to each case. They research the latest breakthroughs and clinical trials, and they elicit the opinions of 10 to 15 world-leading experts per case. They purposefully seek out experts who will come at each case from a different perspective, the Bainesian method. Altogether, they will put in over 250 MD hours for every case. That means 500 times the amount of brain power that a typical doctor can afford to offer. Nobody can do what Metasearch does. Call 832-968-6667. That's 832-968-6667 to be in touch. You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. A year and six weeks ago, we invited today's guest and talked telehealth. It then had a 1% adoption rate with patients and about 20% with docs. And then the game changer, need I say it, a pandemic changed the adoption forever. So two quick data points, and we're going to dig deeper into this today, is this spring, from March until April, the number of Medicare patients increased from roughly 13,000 a week on telehealth visits to over a million five. That is a hundredfold bump from February to April. Second data point, just 0.1% of primary care Medicare visits were telehealth, but we've seen a 400-fold increase. Nora Belcher is the executive director of the Texas eHealth Alliance, which is a nonprofit advocacy group she started 11 years ago to give telehealth stakeholders a voice in public policy. Texas, remember, is the home to Teladoc, which today announced an $18.5 billion merger with Livongo. So the Texas eHealth Alliance serves as the state's leading advocate from local communities to the national level for the largest telehealth organization in the country by far. Um, and Nora, like me as a nerd, in that she proudly owns a hardcover first edition of Game of Thrones. I don't know, should I congratulate you for the Game of Thrones or for your telehealth success? Um, as long as you don't hold me responsible for the last season of Game of Thrones, where they went off book and it was uh, pretty hurtful to the fans. I think they were disappointed. The books themselves are, are quite fabulous. I'll take the credit for the telehealth stuff. I think we've worked really hard in Texas to be well positioned, even though nobody asked for the zombie apocalypse and to be the breakthrough moment. We didn't ask for it, but we're here and it's it's working and it's working really, really well. And the legislature had done some really good things in advance. Uh, but still the numbers that you just cited, Ron, they're quite extraordinary. Um, 
I have a colleague in the energy sector who told me I'll look back on this period of time as the equivalent of the discovery of fracking. Yes. And f- how fracking changed energy. So it's it's a fascinating time to be in the policy space. The um, the federal government seems to be embracing, at least on the Medicare side, the reimbursements of telehealth, and they're going to permanent permanentize, if that's a word, the reimbursements so that that encourages um, more of this technology to uh, thrive. Is there anything else going on on telehealth coding so that it makes more sense on a more long-term basis than the short-term pandemic numbers are saying? Sure. So I think there's several things that are going on. Um, First of all, I really think that CMS did an outstanding job being responsive to the need for social distancing and the need for uh, using telemedicine and telehealth in response to the the short-term situation. We have historically at the federal level had um, a congressional budget office problem. In other words, telemedicine and telehealth looks like it increases access in a vacuum, which looks like it makes utilization go up without really showing us uh, more data on things like cost savings, avoiding ER utilization, that sort of thing. The pandemic has really given us an opportunity to, to measure some of that and really have some better data on what it works for and what it doesn't. So I do expect to see, uh, the president had a a press announcement yesterday about some of the additional steps CMS is gonna take. There is a bipartisan telehealth bill moving through the house at the federal level. So I think we're we're all pretty pleased. I think the trick with the coding is over time, we're gonna need more and more telemedicine specific codes because as new innovations come online using things like artificial intelligence, to do guided therapies, for example, for certain kinds of treatments. They may not fit neatly into an existing CPT code or an existing HICS-PICS code. So there's gonna be some work I think we'll all need to do there to uh, have the coding environment keep up with innovation, which is really gonna be a challenge because folks are innovating in this space literally every day. I mean, you think about e-psychiatry and e-psychology and it's really taken off in a big way um, and that you can get a lot more done over the phone. It's certainly not as touchy-feely or warm or maybe even you can argue it real as being in person, talking to a real human being, seeing the uh, gleam in their eyeballs. But Zoom has really, and other platforms, has really created an opportunity for mental health, which is just taking off. I mean, the, we don't even know what the numbers look like in terms of uh, mental health issues that are brewing that may not be uncovered for years. But uh, do we have codes for at least that? We do have codes for that. And part of what we they've done in the short term is that we have a, a way to do a modifier. So if you're doing an office visit, but you're just doing it over video or over the phone, you just bill with a modifier to the code and that tells the payer, this is what Medicare is doing, this is what Texas Medicaid is doing, that it was a virtual encounter. In the short term, most of the states and the federal government have actually sort of thrown telephone calls into the bucket with video calls just because as you pointed out at the top, most physicians were not ready to do telemedicine in March of this year. Um, I think that may shift some over time, particularly for physical health, but for mental health services, well, you don't really have to do a full physical exam laying on of hands of the patient to start having a conversation. The phone is going to be part of the way that we reach people who may not have access to the internet, may not have the latest smartphone, Uh, We have seen some of those issues um, in Dallas, for example, Parkland Hospital is doing some really great work with telemedicine and telehealth, and they're letting me know that they've got patients they're trying to reach who only, still only have a landline phone. 
So we've got to be clear about making sure those, those folks are people we can still get to as well. Yeah, technology is always going to be the issue, even as you think adoption's complete, it isn't. Um, so the otoscope, the laryngoscope, and the stethoscope are the, the doctor's favorite three tools to look in the ear, the throat, and the, to palpate, palpate the chest and listen to stomach issues. And the issue is that those kits, to send them to patients are a free, few hundred bucks for something a patient needs once, maybe twice a year if they're chronic, maybe six times a year. Are there any models out there that are actually finding a way to pay for those tools to get in the hands of, of the patient so that the doctor can have a remote visit um, at will with their favorite tools? Okay, so there's a couple of things around devices that I think are really interesting. First of all, I've not priced the stethoscopes or the laparoscopes recently, but you can get a Bluetooth otoscope for under $100 on Amazon um, that is reusable, that has reusable tips. So part of what I would like to see is for that to be part of a newborn's kit that goes home with mom after the birth from the hospital, because we all know that babies like to get ear infections late um, on Saturday night. So in particular, I think could become more ubiquitous. The trick with giving equipment to people is that you have to comply with anti-kickback law. So either the insurer has to pay for it or the provider has to pay for it and keep ownership of it. You can't give the equipment to the patient for free and then let them keep it. They have to pay market value for it or someone has to pay for it. So we're starting to, to already see some rumblings about making sure we're compliant with the law. That being said, Remote patient monitoring is the category where a lot of that stuff could potentially fit, particularly for folks that have a chronic condition. I think it's a little harder to do it for somebody who's having sort of a one-off, but someone who's having regular issues, whether it's a blood pressure cuff or an otoscope, um, remote patient monitoring is a reimbursed benefit. Medicaid does it, Medicare does it, and I think we're gonna see more of it as an alternative to sending a home health nurse into a home now, of course, because of social distancing and the need to protect those healthcare workers and protect the people in the home that might be vulnerable, but also in the long term, using technology to sub for some of, some of those visits is going to be a real thing. I think the challenge is going to be making sure that we do it in ways that don't violate the anti-kickback rules, that ownership of the equipment is really, really clear, who's responsible for it, who's paid for it. If insurers are smart, they will pay for this stuff because it's a great way to keep people out of the emergency room, keep them out of urgent care, maybe keep them out of a freestanding ER that they might go to not quite understanding what they're getting into. I used to believe they wanted to save money and I don't believe that anymore. I think they just don't want to spend more <laughs> a penny more than 85% of their ALR. Well, that's true. That's a, that's a fair point. We want all this stuff to go into that 85%, by the way. And that's been an issue at times when the coding is not clear. We've, I've certainly seen actuaries try to classify telemedicine as an administrative cost, which is a massive disincentive because then it's on the wrong side of the ratio. Um, are there some carriers that are better than others with telehealth reimbursements? Are some of them giving you know, uh, you know, a lot of trouble to the providers out there? You know, right now they're under mandates. You're talking about private insurers in particular, about as opposed to the government plans. Um, there's a long list on the AHIP website of the different, so that's America's Health Insurance Plans, their trade association, of the different uh, solutions that different health plans are offering. I think that's a picture that's a little bit in motion. I will tell you that in Texas, uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield is doing contracting for telemedicine. United in some places is very aggressive about it. Superior, which is Centene, one of our Medicaid plans, um, is using the technology in some pretty aggressive ways. 
But you have to remember that a lot of those private insurers are those employer-based plans, and they're regulated by the Department of Labor federally. They actually don't have any mandate to cover telemedicine, unlike the plans that are state-regulated. So there's a pretty ferocious debate going on in D.C. right now about whether or not those plans, which are employer-based 50-state, multi-state plans, need to be integrating telemedicine more effectively, and should that be a mandate that Congress puts on them, or should we wait for them to step up and do it on their own? Um, that's a, a very, very hot topic in Washington right now as the coronavirus packages continue to be debated. Um, so do you have any uh, favorite companies you'd like to, not companies, but industries you'd like to see bailed out by the federal government? Or are you of the opinion that we're putting money into systems that already have giant reserve funds and don't really need these bailouts? So I am not 100% sure outside of the providers, which is where I'm focused, who might or might not be getting bailed out. I will tell you where I'd like to see money spent, though, if that's your question, and public health infrastructure. Our public health infrastructure is terrible. We are running software from the 1970s, and we are sending faxes of case reports from local public health to state public health, and then it's manually being data entered and compiled and sent to the CDC. So, you know, as a trade association, Obviously, I represent my industry, and I would like for us to get money, selfishly, perhaps. Those are the interests I represent. But I will tell you what is frustrating is to see discussions of pouring money into old models while we have neglected priorities like public health, where we should be moving into using 21st century standardized technology. We have the technology to do case reporting in real time on coronavirus, and we're not doing it because we haven't made the investments and we're still arguing over whether those are good investments. And that is just ridiculous. There was an article in uh, ProPublica yesterday that a young lady, a physician in, uh, I believe, Washington, is doing her own Google searches of uh, obituaries of healthcare workers that died for from C-19. And her numbers are like 10x the numbers that are being reported by CDC. It's It's... It's not even close. And then population health experts are weighing in. They're going, yeah, the infection rates for healthcare workers and the death rates couldn't possibly be the numbers that they're announcing. Do you think it's pernicious or do you think it's just incompetence because of these 1970s software systems that we're working off of? So I believe the principle is called Robert Conquest's Law, which is to evaluate the behavior of, of a bureaucracy by assuming it's controlled by a group of its worst enemies. Um, okay. I, I don't think there's any malice at the CDC, at state public health, at local public health. I do think there are perhaps conflicting agendas in the politics of it. But I also think if we had a clean standards-based reporting system, it would you wouldn't be able to monkey with it. And the fact that it's all manual, I think, is casting a lot of doubt on the data. Well, you look, you've had gigantic Medicare, Medicaid budgets at your fingertips for the state of Texas working for the governor. If you could be queen for a day and mandate how we should be getting ourselves out of this, let me give you my two-second prescription. Let's talk about immune health. Let's talk about outdoor walking and strengthening your lungs. Let's talk about you know a little vitamin D. Let's talk about nutrition, proper sleep. Let's talk about hydration. Let's talk about building your immune system so that you aren't one of the one half of one percent that are going to fall victim to this uh, to the to fatality. I don't know why our public health officials aren't talking about some of these common sense free solutions. You don't have to join a gym to go walk outside two or three miles. I completely agree with you. I think that 
I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, part of what has frustrated the American people to the point of um, sort of surrender is, oh, two weeks to crush the curve. Oh, four weeks to crush the curve. Oh, do this. Oh, do that. Oh, we need masks for uh, healthcare workers. Oh, wait, no, you need to wear a mask. You can do this activity, but you can't do this activity. The messaging has been really inconsistent. And what we also know is that the virus is disproportionately affecting people who have complicated health conditions, not just with the death rates and kind of how they slide upward as folks get older, but also in our Hispanic and African-American populations where we've got health disparities to begin with. Absolutely being healthier overall, while it is not a silver bullet, is going to improve your odds, not just with COVID, but with, with any health situation you might be facing. And I think I look at some of the other countries that I have done some work with, the Netherlands is a great example of this. Their minister of health is also their minister of sport. And by sport, they don't mean like the NFL. By sport, they mean get on your bike and go for a ride. Go be outside. They see physical activity and healthiness as a, an integral component of their overall healthcare strategy. I was there in the fall and I had no idea that that was part of their thinking. I thought that was really fascinating. So I do think we're missing an opportunity to have a broader discussion about keeping people healthy because the focus really is on trying to shut the disease vector down and getting that contagious spread um, under control. But it, we may look back on that as a missed opportunity to talk about health in the bigger picture, Ron. I think you're right about that. I was in Paris a year ago and I just, just totally observation, nothing scientific. I couldn't find obese people that were, late, were natives. I wasn't in the main cities. I mean, I was in Paris, but I was also in the outer lands and I didn't see a lot of obesity in the, because everybody, everybody's smoking, but they're also walking and biking everywhere. And I would imagine when you went to the Netherlands, you might've um, witnessed the same. Uh, absolutely. In fact, I remember being on a train taking public transit back to the airport in Amsterdam and how many people got on the train with their bikes because they were doing a combination of taking public transit someplace and then riding their bicycle. So, you know, you get a lot of pushback when you bring stuff back from other countries, you know, oh, the Netherlands is not that big comparatively. I mean, Houston is bigger. New York is bigger. All of that is true. But I refuse to believe that American ingenuity can't figure out a way to get people to a better place in terms of their health. And it's not just about health coverage, which is where I think we've been stuck debating for the last 10 years, who has insurance, who doesn't have insurance. I'm not saying that's not important. But um, we need to start looking at some of these models where fresh food is at the pharmacy and literally you can write, a, the doc will write a prescription for food, fresh fruits and vegetables for a family to take home along with their medication. Because if all you do is give them the medication and no other lifestyle changes happen, the odds of improvement are significantly less. And Ron, you know this based on the work that you've done for years and years, that we have to look at the, better, the bigger picture of health, not just healthcare. Well, I want to talk us in a second about the clinic of the future, what it looks like in terms of people feeling safe again, so that telehealth, while it's important, um, becomes less important. People aren't feeling safe, and so telehealth has just been a rush to the safety net. But um, we've, I've been talking to architects the last couple of weeks about what does the perfect primary care clinic look like? And they're talking about cork floors because they're antimicrobial and antimicrobial lighting that circulates there above the light and hits it with UV, killing the microbes that, you know, obviously touchless everything. So you get just automatically dispenses hand sanitizer and light and air conditioning. And when you walk in a room, you can open doors with your foot like you can in some restaurants. Um, and then 
soundproof booths so people can actually have a quiet place to have a Zoom call and have a, a doctor consult. Have you thought through, like, if you were to go to your doctor, what that would have to look like for you to feel safe for you and your kids? Sure. Um, I actually have thought about it because I've been doing doctor's visits for some ongoing health issues, both virtually and then in person. I think one of the things that's getting skipped over in the rush to virtualize everything is that you still are going to have to do lab tests, uh, blood draws, urine tests, and that has got to be a high priority to make people feel as safe as possible to do those things. Um, and I really like everything you were just describing. I think that's a piece of it. I think dirty waiting rooms, even having a sick waiting room and a well waiting room is a thing of the past. We're going to have to really focus on keeping those spaces clean. That's going to be important to me. Um, I think having the flexibility to choose virtual when I need it and in person when I need it and maybe go to the lab on a separate date is going to matter and help in terms of helping people flex their time. I am asking my doctor's offices what precautions they're taking and the smart ones are advertising that. They're reaching out to their patients. They're saying, we've reopened. This is what we're doing. Um, I think where that's gotten tricky a little bit is in situations where uh, families are going together as opposed to individuals on their own. Um, that's going to be a little bit harder, just like the debate we're having about schools and what we do with children is going to be a little bit harder. People need to wear masks. People need to do hand sanitizer. And I, I, I think an underappreciated piece of this is ventilation. I think we really have to have a conversation um, about air conditioning. I'm not saying I want to get rid of air conditioning, but I think we're probably going to have to have a conversation about air conditioning because there seems to be some evidence that it's contributing to the problem. There are HEPA filters you can put in each yes. room that are higher end than the ones you buy at the grocery store. I mean, at the uh, Walmart, but you, right. uh, there is what there are air filtration systems that are not as expensive as you'd imagine. So I think all the th all those things are going to be important, and I think the the practice of the future is going to be a hybrid practice. But there's still going to be some times you're going to need to go in. There are going to be some times you're going to need to go get labs, and there's going to be times when you're going to be able to do things virtually. And finding that balance is going to be a trial and error, and it's going to be different for an orthopedic practice than it's going to be for a urology practice than from a psychiatry practice. And those are the things that, that we're going to take some time to suss out. Can't do surgery by telehealth. Um, I had a friend, his half his staff quit on him because they wanted to do telehealth by surgery and they're going, I'm sorry, you're going to have to just find a new job. Oh, no. No, I mean, so you do have models like the DaVinci robot that's controlled remotely, but I call that telehealth. Uh, robotic surgery is sort of a different group. Yeah, I, I tell people all the time, anyone who tells you that you can do everything with telehealth is trying to sell you something and you should be a little suspicious. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what it did for my company. And we talked about this last show a year ago. Um, we started telehealth about two and a half years ago. And most of my employees are single Hispanic females. They're um, on Medicaid. So they had to quit Medicaid to join this telehealth plan because you can't have both. But what we found is that their pink eye, they could call in now. Their ear infection, they could call in now. Their skin rash for their kid, they could call in now. It turns out 85% of visits can be called in by text, by email, by phone, by call, uh, secure with uh, the HIPAA compliance. And by cutting out that time suck of having to go to a Medicaid clinic, which is a four-hour time suck and for a five-minute script, is for the birds. And it's over now for them. And my, my absenteeism dropped in half. My productivity, I can't measure, but I think it, you know, it helps productivity. But let me tell you what it really did is that I had zero turnover for the first time in a multi-decade career in healthcare. You don't see no turnover, zero turnover, but it's because they had free healthcare 
and they had super easy access and low friction. So what telehealth has done for my company is given me great candidates. Everybody wants to get into a company with free healthcare, but it gave me a lot higher productivity because people aren't going to work sick and they're not going to work worried about their kid. You know, I love hearing that, Ron. I will tell you that I think one of the biggest obstacles that we have in this country is sort of the suck it up mentality, go to work sick. You know, even with coronavirus, I've heard story after story of people who couldn't afford to not go to their job. So they took a bunch of Tylenol to take their fever down and they went to their job and they spread the virus. So we've got to move to more of a wellness mentality. And I think virtual visits, I mean, I don't make a doctor's appointment after 8 a.m. I have to be desperate because I don't have four hours to sit in the waiting room in case the doctor starts to run behind. Then there's the time in traffic and you have to find a way to park. So particularly for minor primary care, and I don't mean minor like it's unimportant. I mean minor like it's not major surgery. Virtual care models, they really, really work. And I think we're seeing, uh, you know, the, the Teladoc merger today as a great example of you can go so far with primary care, but I think the merger is with a company that's in the chronic care space. So those things sort of go together and you're going to have to have combinations of all of it to, to keep people healthy. Well, you, you talked about time suck. There's, we actually detailed every step it takes to get a primary care visit and then walk out the door and get your meds. It's a 21 step, Texas 21 step, not a Texas two step. And it's a um, time suck and it's getting in your car, driving somewhere, waiting, filling out a clipboard, waiting some more, making a copay, getting in the door, getting your visit, leaving, making another payment, uh, getting an you know, e-bill that doesn't make any sense to you, that's completely confusing, uh, going to the pharmacy. It's, it's, I don't want to bore you with it, but it's, it's 21 steps. And if you can do that by telehealth with a phone call and an e-script, and now it gets mailed to you, and now the script maybe even comes in a pill pack so you know to take your AMs and your PMs when, they, when the nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals, where they go. So it just can't be, get, it can't get any worse as a customer experience. It can only get better. It's a terrible customer experience and you're not feeling good. So on top of all that, you are accessing the system when you may not be at your best, no matter how bright or experienced you might be as a human being at whatever it is that you do in your day job. Like you said, the, it, it can still be baffling. I'll add one piece to your, your streamlining. In my perfect world, then the drones deliver the drugs to your front door. Yeah. So, so that way you can get them real time if you have an urgent ZPAC need or you need something like for a fungal infection right away. You don't have to wait in the mail for a couple of days. Which ex Exactly. Because mail order, um, so one of the things we're going to work on this legislative session is trying to improve access to telepharmacy because we have communities that don't have a full-time pharmacy that could support uh, pharmacy tech with some remote supervision from a pharmacist. Uh, we've been expanding that every legislative session. It's a, a model that works really well in other states. We've expanded it into our federally qualified health centers. Big, lots of prescriptions never get picked up. We know yes. this. And about half. Well, yeah. Well, let me ask you, in Texas, we have something like 254 counties and something like 50 of them have no doctor maybe a vet that can pull a tooth for you or something, but we don't have any doctors at all in many, and they're large counties. Some of them are as large as states. And we also have 50 plus more counties that have maybe a doc. So when the rural hospital closes and doesn't give birth anymore, then you know a lot of people flood out of that county into the city. Um, so what you're saying if with that solution, rural health would be really, uh, really accentuated in a dramatic way by telehealth and by drones. 
Yes, and we're seeing that. I'll give you a rural health example that I'm extraordinarily proud of. The hospital in Van Horn, which is literally in the middle of nowhere, was not able to sustain enough staffing to be a part of the state's trauma system, which gives you extra money, which was helping keep them open. They've entered into an integrated telehealth model for their emergency room where there are 24-7 ER docs online backed up by nurses, uh, documentation specialists, screens drop down, mics drop down, and they help the PA that's staffing the ER when the doctor's not there with any emergent care that comes through the door that they need help with. The medical director told us uh, during the legislative session last year that his team can now evaluate stabilize, triage, and even get the patient onto the helicopter before he can get his pants on and get to that hospital. 1,901 people in Van Horn. You just use more words than 1,901, I'm pretty sure. Exactly. Um. <laughs> um, it, 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 and so we now we have a number of rural hospitals. We passed some legislation to make sure that any small hospital that wanted to use this model could use it. And what the rural hospital folks are telling me is they can't be hospitals anymore. They have to be healthcare. They have to really offer, especially because we do companies, counties that don't have doctors, those hospitals have got to become multifunctional and they've got to offer some primary care and they've got to offer a dietitian. They've got to offer all these bits and pieces that they don't have time to have full-time staff for. Telemedicine, telehealth is the perfect solution. It lets you, uh, like as software as a service, telehealth is a service. You have organizations you can contact with, academic groups, for-profit groups, all sorts of groups that will just give you what you need and you pay for that when you need it, rather than having a full-time employee that may only see two patients a week. Because you can't afford that. It's unrealistic. So we are, I'm guessing, somewhere around the 40% acceptance level of telehealth, where we were at 1% when we talked June of last year. Now we're in August of 2020. Do you have any predictions? Well, first, it's almost for sure going to hold at 40% or more, but are, do you have any predictions what this looks like a year from now when we talk again? Well, there's two potential scenarios. Uh, scenario one is that we don't get the virus under control and the numbers are kept artificially high because it's just being implemented for social distancing. That's not a scenario I'm terribly fond of. I think there will be practices in the long run that will be completely virtual. I think that your number of 85% for certain things is an accurate thing. And I think there are gonna be certain professions, certain um, types of services, maybe orthopedic surgery is a great example, where those first visits are still gonna to have to be in person because that's just what you have to do to meet the standard of care because the standard of care is not going away just because we're moving into a virtual world. Uh, but I think almost all practices are going to have to offer this in some shape, form, or fashion. The consumers that I'm talking to that are doing it have no interest in ever having it taken away from them. Well, there's two things still in the hitch and the get along and, and what it were a year ago. The number one is there has to be an in-person standard of care. You can't just start a telehealth visit with a stranger, right? Um, you can, but you have to meet certain uh, technical standards in terms of what information gets exchanged. So even if, now under the pandemic, you can do a phone call with a doctor that's never seen you and get a prescription, but that's because of the public health emergency. When the emergency ends, it goes back to the standard of care and you have to at least do a video visit. The doctor has to at least be able to lay eyes on you. And if the condition requires something like a lab test and you don't do it, 
you are at risk from a regulatory enforcement perspective. So none of that has gone away. We've sort of temporarily put some of it aside to respond to the emergency. But a year from now, assuming we get a vaccine or some other step that brings the spread of the virus under control, uh, providers need to really be mindful that the standard of care is still the expectation. And if they're prescribing to a new patient uh, over telemedicine and telehealth, they, they've got to mind their P's and Q's and make sure they do all the right things and do the documentation. Okay. Is there a source they can go to to make sure they know where the P's and the Q's land? Sure. Um, we've got information um, on our website. We've got a, a section that says new to Texas that's got all the links to all the regulatory requirements. There are also some really great frequently asked questions documents on the Texas Medical Board's website. Um, and I always recommend that folks check don't just take my word for it, go straight to the regulator and read what they say because they, they make it, they spell it out pretty clearly. They do, I think, a pretty good job of letting folks know what the expectations are. Now, I wanna make sure I say that's specific to prescribing. Regulated is prescribing. Just giving advice, having conversations, doing triage is not regulated at the same level of intensity as prescribing. Okay. I, my second question, and we asked this last year as well is, the VA, you're a doctor in the VA, you can pres prescribe, you can diagnose in any of the 50 states and territories. If you are in the defense health, same thing. They've expanded the, de the definition of licensing. And so we were kind of hoping in our call last time that would expand as well. And it looks like temporarily it has. Do you think that's something that'll take? So I doubt that that's going to take in the long run because of the 10th amendment issues that are involved that occupational regulation is thought of by the courts as an extension of the police power of the states and it's not something the federal government can do outside federal systems i have actually not heard a lot of conversation about creating a national telemedicine license in dc as a result of the pandemic people are way more focused on reimbursement so I'm afraid when the public health emergency goes away, you sort of fall back to state regulation. That being said, we now have 37 states participating in the Interstate Compact for Medical Licensure, which is a way to really speed up that multi-state licensing process. And the reason that that's important is because if somebody from Harlingen, Texas has a bad outcome and wants to file a complaint against their doctor, if it's centralized in DC, there's a lot of concern that they would never get any help or any relief from their complaint. So you sort of run up, um, Ron, I know you will get this when I say it. Part of what's happened in the pandemic is a rediscovery of the fact that we're actually a federalized republic and not a giant monolithic democracy, which is what people think we are, but we're actually not. And both the federal and state constitutions give local certain power, state certain power, the federal government certain power. It would certainly simplify things to have a national telemedicine license or some reciprocity, but the compact uh, looks like it's probably the closest thing that we're going to get to right now. And I think that the real the reality of that is is clear in the fact that the federal discussion that's happening right now is not including that licensure component. That's it's not even being talked about. So, Nora, how can folks find you at the Texas eHealth Alliance and find sure. that website? Our website is uh, Uh We've got a form folks can fill out to send an email if they've got questions. We've got information on how the Texas legislative process works, the bills we pass, the things we do, 
uh, happy to interact with anybody who's got an interest. I need all the friends I can get. We might be popular right now, but we're competing with education and other folks for resources, time, and attention. So it really does take a team to, to get this stuff done. And while you are, the Health Alliance is all about telehealth. It's also about any kind of e-health related uh, bills yes. and e-health related policy. It's, it's a wider yes. expanse than just telemedicine. Yes, uh, health information exchange, electronic medical records, cybersecurity, broadband, privacy, uh, innovation, infrastructure, interoperability. We're, we cover the whole waterfront. Uh, the Texas legislature likes to see a lot of agreement. So we work really closely with the provider associations on trying to have joint agendas on legislation. But yeah, we're not just a telemedicine group. I will, if it has to do with digital health and it has to do with making things better for patients, we are interested in it. Well, we're excited. Teladoc and Livongo are merging. It's actually sort of they're same size. I mean, we have an $18.5 billion valuation for Livongo, and, and I looked at today, and the market cap of Teladoc is about $18 billion, about $17.5 billion. So uh, they're doubling their size. Livongo. Big news. Sorry. Yeah. Big, big, news. big, big, big news. I need the first big IPO. You know, Teladoc was the first big IPO in this space. And on behalf of the, the stakeholders as a collective, I want them to be successful rock stars. Yeah. If well, they, not, their stock has quintupled in the last uh, four, four months, so they are rock stars. Yeah, it, it sets the stage for success for everybody else to have them be successful. So it's super exciting news. My phone's been blowing up about it all day. Every, it's a lot of buzz. Everybody's talking about it, and I'm, I'm good for them. I think it's really cool. I'm interested to see how the merger plays out. Yeah, very good. Well, thank you, Nora. We always ask the final question we asked you last year. Um, if you could fly a banner with a message for all Americans about health, what would that banner be over America right now? So I spent some time thinking about this one. <laughs> I knew okay. it was coming. And I have to tell you, I think it would be go outside and take a walk. <laughs> I like that. I am right okay. there. Put down your phone, stop doom scrolling, go outside and take a walk. I think yep. if everybody did more of that. Our overall health as a country would automatically improve. I'm about to tell you, that is so true. I've, I've walked six miles a day for the last 30 days, so I haven't felt better in 20 years. It's amazing how simple, and it costs me nothing. Nothing. It's easy. Listen to your favorite audiobook. Have a, I've walked with friends the last four days. It's a great way for social outlet when you're feeling isolated. It's it's wonderful. It's it's really, really good for you. I think um, my husband laughs at me because I listen to true crime podcasts while I walk. Maybe that's not the absolute healthiest thing you could listen to. I binge Dateline because um, I'm a true crime junkie, but you, you've got to get out there. And more importantly, you've got to put your phones down. And I'm afraid that the pandemic has created a lot more screen time, more than I would like. So it makes it all the more important for us to get our bets outside. Yes, ma'am. And by the way, there was an uh, interesting data that's just incontrovertible that of the autopsies they've done on C19 patients, 4% had adequate vitamin D and 96% had inadequate vitamin D. So that's sunshine, baby. It's free. Yeah, I am. I am right there with you, Ron. You you are one hundred percent correct on that one. Everybody should pay attention and take that to the bank. Yes. Well, thank you, Nora. This is always interesting and wonderful to talk to you, and I can't wait to talk again next year when this grows. And um, well, let's hope it's not for sake of a pandemic. Yeah. Same, Ron. I'm always happy to be here. Call me anytime. I was happy to have the conversation. I appreciate you giving me a venue to. 
uh, put our opinions and what we're thinking and working on out there. And also I'm interested to get annual updates from you on how your business is doing. I think it's pretty great. Super. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to our sponsor, the MediSearch Institute. I want to read you a note a CEO friend of mine sent me who used them for a rare childhood disease her daughter had. Dr. Talbot's research was thorough. He provided clear paths of treatment, and he gave me access to the best physicians. I'm so grateful for his work. That's the MediSearch Institute. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.